The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. I am Jonah. I am shocked when God does the unthinkable. I am Jonah. Even when my heart isn't in it, God uses me to impact others. I am Jonah. I need to be reminded that no one is beyond the reach of God. I am Jonah. I am amazed that some will go to such great lengths to get right with God. I am Jonah. Though I struggle with my faithfulness, God is always faithful. Well, good morning, Central. How are you doing this morning? It's good to see you. How many from normally the nine o'clock service are joining us here today? Oh, some of you, good, good. Now, and then when others come in and I don't know, about 35 minutes or 20 minutes or so, just welcome them and let them sit next to you. So, hey, uh, I'm thrilled to be able to jump into part five of our six-part series in Jonah. We're gonna have some fun this morning and we are diving right into this. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter three. If you need a copy of scripture, our ushers are coming down the aisle. You can throw your hand up and they will get you a copy of scripture and you can follow along today. And as you are finding Jonah chapter three, um, a quick word of greeting from Craig. Craig is in Cambodia today. He's with Pastor Kelly. And uh, so he wanted me to let you know he says hello. He misses you. He's been gone for about a week. And then uh, tomorrow, Pastor Mike McKay jumps on a plane and then meets Craig and Kelly in Jakarta, where they're going to be for another week. And uh, so they're doing a lot of great work over there. And I just actually got back recently from a trip to Turkey. I got to spend uh, nearly two weeks in Turkey and uh, took a pastors and leaders group over there. Here's a picture of the group itself. Had uh, a number of people from all over the country. And we also had a pretty good contingent from West Michigan, which was a blast because I get to invest in West Michigan through a group like this. Uh, Torin was also with us. So if you're not familiar with who Torin was, you're maybe new. He was the guy who just did uh, all the announcements on stage. He's in the middle of the picture, a little bit to the right. Now you can't read what his shirt says. Okay, but let me just tell you, we are not standing in the snow. Okay, this is called travertine. It's a certain type of rock that is in a city called Heropolis. But Torin is wearing a shirt that says, pray for snow. <laughs> How wrong is that? I said to him on the day, I was like, dude, what is your issue? And I totally forgot he wore that shirt. So this morning I'm like running through things. I'm like, he's wearing a shirt that says, pray for snow. No, we don't wanna pray for snow. We left the snow. Um, but we... Um, uh, had a phenomenal trip. And I know that some of you knew that we were gone. Oftentimes I give you a heads up if I'm leaving, but the last teaching I did, we left the following day was when I did the, the Jonah thing with the steps. And at the end of the service, it just it felt like that the scene that we had set was just not helpful for me to mention about a turkey trip at that point. So I let that go. I know many of you who knew about it were praying for us and we greatly appreciate it. Cause here's one of the things that I've found 
is that God invests richly in people on these trips. Like literally whole lives are transformed. And when you have a group of 33 pastors and leaders, when these people change, their communities change. When their communities change, the kingdom of heaven goes forth with great power. So we often are met with a lot of opposition. We have some crazy things that happen on these trips. Um, People get sick in really, really kind of crazy, bizarre ways. And we had a number of things that happened. One in particular was on a day we took a hike and we do a lot of walking on these trips. So this is the one hike that was optional for the group. And so about half stayed back, half went on the hike. And uh, the interesting thing was, is that that evening and then the following morning, all of the guys on the trip had these markings on their body, but the two gals that were with us on the hike did not. Uh, Let me show you what mine looked like the following morning. So uh, this is not poison ivy, it's not poison anything. Um, here was the bizarre thing is we're trying to figure out, okay, what is this? We've never had this one happen before. This was a new one. And we had the two ladies in the group that did not get this, yet all the guys who did this hike did, and nobody else. So it was only the people who went on this hike. And so uh, my guide friend who's in Turkey, he was telling his wife about this. And she's like, oh, I know exactly what that is. She said, in that region, there is an insect so small that you can't see it, but it bites. But here's the kicker. It only bites men. Okay, the insect is sexist. It's not bite women at all. And so we found out what it was. And uh, this was one of the many interesting things that we had happen uh, on the particular trip. So, so I'm gonna make it more of a point to let you know when I'm leaving so that you can continue to, to join in, in prayer for us in the group. But like I said, things change. And one of the things that I found about these trips is that whether it's a general public trip or it is a pastors and leaders trip like this one was, is that if I have any pastors on the trip, inevitably during the trip, I'll get at least a one pastor, maybe a couple of pastors that will come to me at some point and they'll just start crying. And they'll say to me, Brad, I, I wish I wouldn't have waited so long to do this. I mean, these pastors have been pastoring for decades and God meets them in a very special way. And they say, my life has totally changed. How I'm gonna preach the rest of my life is gonna be different. My community is gonna change by how God has invested me on this trip. Um, And so this is something that you all as a community allow me to do, the elders allow me to do. I'm forever grateful. Uh, It allows me to tap into the larger church calling that I feel like God has on me, but it allows people like this to have God meet them in a very, very special way. And things change for these people and for their community. So just a a very big thank you to all of you who do that. The reason why Craig gets to spend two weeks now in Jakarta and Cambodia is connected to Central, but it's because of how we have things arranged that he can go do that as well. And so our church is very giving in allowing us the space to do other things that God is calling us to do, which all connects back into our calling here at Central. So a thank you to you. And then also I just want to mention some of you are like, okay, you normally mention you're going to be doing these trips. I didn't do that this year. I have a trip in April or uh, May and trip in August, Israel and then Turkey. And the reason why this year I didn't share them with you is this is my seventh year leading trips. And this is the first time this has ever happened, but the trips sold out before they were even posted. Uh, So that's why I didn't share that with you. But as some things change for people's lives, we just recently had a cancellation for the Israel trip. We leave in nine weeks. There are two spots available. And we just had some open spots come up on the Turkey trip that weren't there, six to be exact. If you're interested in any way, you can just go to walkingthetext.com. And if God's been working on your heart and you've been wanting to do one of these trips, if you're thinking about Israel, uh, jump on that as soon as possible. It's a first come, first serve basis. So 
That is the, uh, some of the things I just wanted to share with you this morning, and now we get to get into Jonah. So if you did not find Jonah chapter three yet and you've got a copy of scripture, page 926, Jonah has been a bit on the run. God spoke a word to him. He chose to go the opposite direction. God used a storm and a big fish to kind of recorrect what he was doing. And now Jonah has headed in the right direction. He is heading to Nineveh where God asked him to go in the first place. And let's jump into this together. Jonah chapter three, verse one reads this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Craig last week talked about that God is a God of second chances. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So catch you up if you're just joining us. God calls uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh and initially he goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. God allows this big fish to kind of change his direction. As Craig talked about last week, this is maybe one of the areas where the big fish spewed him up on shore. And at the very shortest, he had 430 miles. So if, if the whale was further south, he had a little bit further to go. It was about 22 days of walking that Jonah had in his mind about thinking about what he's gonna do. He's now arrived in Nineveh. And here's what the city looked like in about 700 BC. So the story of Jonah takes place roughly like 760 BC. So this is 60 years later. It has now become the capital of the Assyrian Empire under a guy by the name of Sennacherib made Nineveh that. So in Jonah's day, Nineveh was not the capital, but it was on the rise. And what we're gonna find out in chapter four next week is that there were 120,000 people in Nineveh. This is a big city. Now it tells us that it would take Jonah three days walk to go through it. Now, if we're talking about on a straight line, there is no way that this is what this is referring to. Uh, the city itself, no city in the ancient world was big enough that it would take three full days to walk through. Uh, this phrase that means to walk through here in the text can refer to a region like it might take Jonah three days to walk through the entire region, which would have had Nineveh and some other Assyrian cities. Uh, this word can also mean a, like a circuitous route that it would take him a few days to make a journey all the way around the city. But again, Nineveh is not that big, but there's one other context with which this Hebrew word shows up in. And it's the idea that it would take Jonah three days to complete his mission which is to speak this word out to the Ninevite people. There are 120,000 people, which means that it would take him three days to teach in all the gate complexes, to go to all the major temples, to go to all the city squares in order for 120,000 people or for word to spread to 120,000 people. It would take roughly three days. And so we're gonna find out here that Jonah begins his message here on the first day. Notice with me verse four. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So uh, what you got here is he goes in and he gives this message. Now check this out. In Hebrew, his message is a whole five words. That's it. In English, it's eight he goes and he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I'd like to submit to you, this is a half-hearted attempt on Jonah's part to do what God's asked him to do. Because notice, he doesn't say why they're gonna be overthrown. 
He also doesn't say who's gonna do it. He never mentions God's name. He just says, hey, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And unbelievably, they repent. 120,000 people hear this and they begin to repent. Which makes you wonder, how in the world do 120,000 people repent with five words? Like what is going on here? Is there anything else that's going on here? Well, there might be something else going on here. See, in an archeological excavation, an ancient text was found citing a solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse in, well, I mean, it's everywhere on earth, but as far as the ramifications in Assyria were huge. This was in 763 BC, following the solar eclipse in areas of Assyria, there were flooding, there was flooding and there was famine. Like talk about the two extremes, right? And then there was also earthquakes that happened in the region of Assyria following the solar eclipse. Now the time of Jonah going to Nineveh, this was from the first week, you can't maybe see that as well. Jonah is going to Nineveh at this exact same time. Now, we don't know if it's the exact same year, but it's certainly within the window here. And the question becomes, was God like preparing the Ninevites for Jonah's message? Because when you have like things in the celestial heavens doing what they're doing, and then you have famine and then flooding and earthquakes, like the ancients believed the gods and goddesses were behind everything. And so in some way, shape or form, maybe on the one hand, like the gods were upset, they were angry and this was how they were demonstrating that. But on the other side of the equation, you could go as an ancient, well, maybe the gods are trying to speak to us. Maybe there's a message that we're supposed to get in all of this. And it makes you wonder if God was putting this giant puzzle together to reach the Ninevites and Jonah's five words were the final piece in that puzzle because they repent. Now we don't know if there was more to that, did Jonah say something else? Are we getting a synthesized version? We, we don't entirely know, but at least what's recorded for us, he never tells them why they're gonna be overthrown. He never uses the word of God. And yet the text tells us in verse five, the Ninevites believed God. Somehow, some way, what Jonah was preaching, the Ninevites believed this was from God himself. And they begin to repent like crazy. They're like scrambling to repent. And it starts with the folks that Jonah has spoken to. Word spreads and it goes up the chain really, really quickly. Because notice what happens next. Verse six. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, get this, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. We have this up-down thing going on here. We also had it earlier in the story. So if you remember the last teaching I did with the steps is that God originally said to Jonah, I want you to arise, get up, stand up, and I want you to go to Nineveh. And we read that Jonah stood up and went to Tarshish or fled in the direction of Tarshish. And in order to do that, he turned his face away from God. And then his only direction was down, 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 down. So Jonah rises up and ends up going down out of disobedience. And we have a king here who rises up to eventually sit down in repentance. Now, here's what we have here. It tells us that you have the king who's sitting on his throne. 
And all of a sudden, somebody comes breaking through the door at some point and they're like, King, King, we, we've got to talk to you. Well, what's going on? You're not going to believe this. But there's like a guy out there from Israel. His name is Jonah. And he's had this message. And as a result of the message, like everybody believes like a God or a big God or the God or something is speaking and they're just repenting like crazy. What do you mean? What's his message? Well, the message is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And it says at this word, the king receives a word from God it says he arises from his throne. He's gonna leave his throne because in this moment he recognizes I'm not in control. There is someone more powerful than I that I need to submit myself to because I have wronged this God in some way. And so it says that he arises out of his throne and it takes off his royal robes a way of symbolizing his nice clothing, his clothing that symbolizes his ability to rule. He takes it off and it says that his action next is that he puts on something. So he gets up, he takes something off, he puts on sackcloth, this nasty, scratchy, icky, shedding material that is incredibly uncomfortable to wear. And it says he puts it on. Sackcloth throughout history has been a symbol of repentance, of humility. And it says that he closed that and then he sits in the dust. Now you don't just sit in the dust as if in, oh, my shoes are getting a little bit dirty. Like it's got to make sure I don't get so dirty. No, no, no. When you sit down in the dust, you start taking on the dust. You put the dust all over you. Yeah. Feels awful. <laughs> you cover yourself in the dust. It is repenting in sackcloth and dust. Now, why does the king do this? Why would anybody do this? Well, it's, it's very simple. The king has heard a word from God. And the king's response, we could just say this way, is that the king hears a word from God and he takes drastic measures to obey. But it doesn't just stop here. For the king. Notice what we read next in Jonah verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. So it's like a wholesale fast for everybody. Not only the king, not only the people, but also for the animals. And then catch this, verse eight, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's like fasting for everybody. Sackcloth for everybody. Everybody's involved in this. 
So um, let's play this out a little bit, shall we? I got a friend who's gonna join me on stage. Barkley, come here, buddy. Barkley, come here, buddy. Yes, hi, buddy. Can you all say hello to Barkley? Hi, Barkley. Hi, so good of you to join us. Now, Barkley is uh, the dog of Holly LeBlanc who works here and he's a service dog. So he normally has a harness on and that's code for if you ever see the dog with a service harness on, you can't speak to it, you can't pet it, you can't acknowledge it's there. So I'm grateful today that we got to take that off so we could have some fun, huh buddy? So if you see Barkley around and he's got the service thing on, his harness, you can't talk to him, pretend he's invisible, all right? Now, Barkley's gonna help us out because what do we get to do, Barkley? Yeah, come here, buddy. Come here. All right, Barkley, sit, sit, sit. Oh, this is fun. Because last service, Barkley, <laughs> we're doing this whole thing and uh, Barkley's sitting great and patiently gets up, he starts walking around. I'm like, what is he doing? Like he's normally just kind of sits here. Oh yeah, he found a dead mouse in the dirt pile. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was thinking like my worst fear is he'd treat this thing as a big litter box, right? And he's got this mouse, but okay, Barkley, let's do this. Sit, Barkley, sit. Good boy, good boy. All righty, can I have your paw? Yes. This is like one of the coolest dogs on earth, by the way. All right, buddy, let me see your other paw. Oh, good boy, good boy. All right, come over here. All right, sit, you wanna sit? Yeah, there's no more mice, I made sure, they were gone. You wanna sit, buddy? All right, I'll let you just sniff for a bit. Now, um, let's be honest here, this is weird. Right? I mean, look at the dog. He's covered in sackcloth. Hey, buddy, you want to sit down? Sit. Can you sit down? Down. No. All right, you just keep looking at that screen. You see yourself on the screen, don't you? <laughs> He's like, wow, I am really that handsome. <laughs> Good boy, you can just stay here. This is weird. Right? You look at this and you go, what is the king thinking? Why in the world? Would he have animals dressed in sackcloth? Well, here's the thing about stories like this, is that when there's something weird, pay attention to the weird, because the weird often confirms or accentuates the point, which is this. Taking what the king did, if we could just say this for us, is this, that when you hear a word from God, take whatever measures necessary, however drastic, to obediently respond. And the king takes drastic measures, takes on sackcloth, sits in the dust, has all the animals from cows to dogs dressed in sackcloth. It's a drastic and dramatic response to a word from God. Now, Jesus will speak about something similar in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice what Jesus says from Matthew chapter five. It says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, is Jesus being literal here? No, this is called hyperbole. This was a rabbinical teaching practice that Jesus utilizes on several occasions. 
which by the way tells us nobody takes every square inch of the Bible literally. Okay, because if they did, every Bible-believing dude would be a one-armed cyclops. Okay, Jesus is using hyperbole here, but his point is this, take drastic measures. If you receive a word from God, take whatever measures necessary, however drastic, to obediently respond. This is what we see from the king of Nineveh. This is what we see from the people in general. In fact, this wholesale repentance, this posture that they take was so revered even among the Jewish people that starting in about 200 AD for the Yom Kippur service. Now Yom Kippur is the Jewish day of atonement. It's the most holy day of the year for the Jewish calendar. It's the day in which the people believe that God forgives the sins of the nation. And so 10 days leading up to this, they're forgiving one another because they go, well, God's not gonna forgive us if we're not willing to forgive one another, which is by the way, how the Lord's prayer ends in Jesus's sermon on the Mount. And so what they do is that on the evening service of Yom Kippur, they read the book of Jonah and they talk about the repentant nature of the Ninevites. Now, the very fact that the Jews do this tell you something that this was a significant moment for the Ninevites to do this because if you know Jewish history, Jonah is in Nineveh, roughly 760 BC. 40 years later, it's the people of Assyria who are gonna come into the Northern Kingdom of Israel, conquer them and deport them because the Israelites failed to live a lifestyle of repentance before God. It was the Assyrians God used to punish the Northern Kingdom. And yet, even today, on Yom Kippur, the king of Nineveh is raised up as an illustration of what repentance looks like. See, we have an interesting contrast going on in this book. You have Jonah, who is a prophet of God. God speaks a word to him and he disobeys. You have a king, a pagan king here, who hears the word from God and scrambles to obey. <laughs> Very succinctly, we just say it this way. The prophet rebels, the pagan repents. The prophet rebels and yet the pagan repents. That contrast alone is interesting to me. But what I find even more fascinating is that God speaks to both the prophet and to the pagan. That in God's grace and mercy and compassion, he extends forgiveness to the Ninevite people. And I get a chance to close out the series next week. We're gonna talk about the Ninevite people. Let me give you a heads up. These were not very nice people. And yet in God's grace, in God's love, in God's mercy, in God's desire to have a personal relationship with every human being that he has created, God speaks a word. If you find yourself here at Central today going, yeah, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not, I'm trying to figure this whole thing out. You'd say, hey, maybe you'd say, I'm just not even religious. I believe God is speaking to you. And I believe that if you're breathing, God is speaking. 
He speaks to the pagan and the prophet. He speaks to the religious and to the non-religious. And God's desire is, will you listen? Will you take whatever measures necessary, however drastic, to obediently respond? Now, there's also a context going on here that is very, very important for us to understand. You see, when God comes and speaks a word through Jonah to the king of Nineveh, to the people itself, uh, they've done wrong. Like they've done some evil stuff. And God comes to them and speaks a word. Now, whether they knew that they were doing evil or whether they just were being negligent and didn't realize it, because let's all be honest, there's probably times in our lives where somebody comes along and they speak to us and we go, oh, I didn't even realize I was doing that. Like we were living into disobedience and we didn't even know it. Now, more times than not, we know, right? We know when we're not doing what's right, when we're completely living off kilter to what God would ask us to do. But when God speaks to the Ninevites, he does so because they need to repent. But when God originally speaks to Jonah, Jonah hasn't done anything wrong. God just says, Jonah, I want you to do this. I'm giving you a word. I'm speaking into your life right now. I want you to do this. And so yes, God comes and he speaks to us in times where we need to repent. But God also comes and speaks to us and says, here's what I want you to do. And and God just wants to know, will you obey? Because there are times it's gonna require drastic measures to do what God is asking us to do. And God may be coming to us at a time when we're not doing anything wrong. He's just asking us to do something with him. One of the things for me over the last couple months is that I feel like this whole idea of a disciple of Jesus, the discipleship lifestyle has been crystallized. You know, one of the things that, that I get to do is on a regular basis, I get the privilege and the honor to stand up here and to walk you through what I believe God has asked me to share with you. Um, I get to go to Israel, I get to go to Turkey, I get to talk about discipleship. What does it mean to follow a rabbi? What does it mean to, to, to pattern your entire life after someone? And all of that is wonderful and true and it's all part of it. But if I had to take like the life of a disciple and just distill it down to something very, very simple to understand, here's what I've come to understand in the last couple months. A disciple of Jesus is someone who listens and obeys. It's that simple and yet that difficult. The word for this in Hebrew is the word Shema. Let me hear you say Shema. How many of you have heard the Hebrew word Shema before? Yeah, I figured there'd be a lot of you in here. Uh, Religious Jews for thousands of years, every evening and every morning, Jesus would have done this as well, said something known as the Shema. It's actually a series of three passages, a passage from Deuteronomy 6, a passage from Deuteronomy 11, a passage from Numbers 15. And they would recite this. And the very first word of the very first passage in the larger Shema is from Deuteronomy 4, which literally begins in Hebrew, Shema. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. The word Shema literally means hear. And interestingly, there is no word in Hebrew for obedience. There's no Hebrew word that means just straight up obedience, how we understand it. The Hebrew word for obedience is shema, hear. 
Now we have a more Greek mindset. So we delineate things down much more than what the holistic Hebrew did. So let me help us to understand it in our terminology. In order to understand hearing, it's listening plus obeying equals hearing. See, in, in Hebrew and to the Hebraic mind, you shma. And if you don't shma, then you didn't do. It doesn't matter if you heard or listened, you just actually didn't do, so it doesn't really matter, it's not hearing. It's kind of like for us, I'll go into my kid's bedroom and boy, oh boy, my eight-year-old and four-year-old share a room and I tell you what, they can make a tornado look like it went through that room really quickly. I mean, it's amazing how often we have to have this conversation. So we go in there, Denyan, Calix, seriously, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're just having fun. Okay, well, great. Uh, you need to have this room cleaned up by dinner. Great, I'll go back in there 45 minutes later, right before dinner. <laughs> it's not only not been cleaned up, it's like another tornado went through that room. And I'll say to them, hey, did you hear what I said? Yep, well, what'd I say? We needed to clean the room before dinner. Okay, that's good that you listened to what I said, but you didn't hear what I said because your room is still a travesty. That's the idea of hearing, is that if we had to break it down, it's that we hear a word from God and we obediently walk it out. That's what it means to hear. A disciple of Jesus is someone who hears, someone whose ears are attentive to the voice of God and they're willing to walk it out, whatever measure necessary. See, God speaks in lots of different ways. God speaks through his word. God speaks through teachings. God speaks through prayer. God speaks through silence. God speaks through other people in our lives. And the question becomes for you and I this morning is, are we listening to God? Because in order to hear, we have to listen and then do. But it begins by having ears that are open to what God is saying. So again, I believe God speaks and I believe God speaks all the time. But for many of us, we just move too quick. We don't slow down long enough to hear a word from God. We don't take the time to just allow the word of God to speak into our lives. And yet God is the kind of God who desires that we listen. And not just to do so with selective listening. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Dallas Willard wrote a book called Hearing God. And he summarizes his own fear about how oftentimes Christians will listen to the word of God. Notice what he writes here in Hearing God. He says, I fear that many people seek to hear God solely as a device for obtaining their own safety, comfort, and sense of being righteous. For those who busy themselves to know the will of God, however, it is still true that those who want to save their life will lose it. His point is, is, is very simple. He just says, listen, my, my concern is, is that when we hear from God, we only hear those things that we wanna hear. We only listen to these words of God that confirm being able to stay in a comfortable place, being in a safe place, uh, not really confronting me on what I'm doing wrong, just commending me on the righteous things that I am doing. But Dallas says, listen, this is a God when he speaks. At times this may cost you something. 
Jesus said, if anybody wants to follow me, might as well grab a cross, pick it up. Because the road of following God is not going to be easy. And oftentimes when we hear that, our immediate response is, is, well, I struggle with doing what God's gonna ask me to do or even being open to what God may be doing because I'm fearful of what it's going to cost me. But friends, that is not a great place to begin. A better place to begin is, is, so what may God do through this? Because anything that is difficult for us to do is generally something that's very important. This past week, I was having lunch with a friend and we were talking and he told me about a book that he was in the middle of. And so um, I downloaded the book and, and read it and it was a biography on three different major people in history that shaped Christianity. Um, one in particular, the first story was a guy by the name of William Tyndale. Some of you may know this name. I knew the name, but I didn't really know a whole lot about him. Uh, William Tyndale was an Englishman, early 16th century AD. William Tyndale was struck when he received a word from God. And the word from God was this, William, I need you to translate the Bible into English. See, Tyndale was appalled at the fact that his own countrymen, his fellow Englishmen, did not have a Bible that they could read in English. In fact, it was against the law by the King of England for anything to be translated to the Bible into English because the language that was used was Latin. It began what was, what was known as the Latin Vulgate. Jerome did this. St. Jerome was either like fourth century or early fifth. I can't remember the years exactly, but it pretty much remained unchanged for a thousand years. And what the religious elite did, the religious leaders did, is they told the people when they came for a service what the Bible said. The people never got to read the Bible because most of the people couldn't read Latin. And so all these traditions were added on top of the text that were actually not text. And Tyndale was like appalled that so many people were being led astray by the religious leaders because they couldn't read the Bible. But it was against the law to translate the Bible into English. But when Tyndale heard a word from God, Tyndale jumped all over this. And God raised up William Tyndale and God raised up a guy by the name of Humphrey Monmouth. And this was a wealthy man whom God spoke to and basically said, I want you to fund what I'm asking Tyndale to do. And so God utilized this man who had great wealth, a great business presence in England, one of the most well-known businessmen of the 16th century. And this man helped Tyndale do a translation of the Bible. He hid Tyndale for a while. When word got out what was going on, Tyndale had to flee. He had to go to Germany for a time being. Monmouth was imprisoned in England for a period of time because he was helping him. Everybody. Then he had the time where he had to run out of England or uh, out of Germany because people were on his heels and he ended up in Brussels. And when Tyndale was in Brussels, he got arrested. He got arrested. Are you all done? Buddy, you did such a great job. Come here. Do you want to sit down or you want to be all done? You want to be all done? Huh? Can, you, can everybody thank Barkley for his time this morning? Come here, buddy. Can I have your paw? We'll, let you, we'll go let you see your mommy. And one of the other things that Barkley does, Barkley's got many tricks, by the way, is that Barkley does high five. Barkley? Okay, Barkley, can you give me high five? High five? Come here, high five. Oh, good boy, good boy. All right, you can go back. Come here. Head back there. Go back. See mommy. 
There you go. Good boy. Such a good dog. If that dog shows up missing, don't check my house. (laughs) So Tyndale ends up getting arrested just outside of Brussels in Belgium. He's imprisoned for 450 days in this horrific prison. Um, Prior to this, he had been able to rework a number of his New Testaments. So he did a New Testament translation. He reworked it several times. And then he started on the Old Testament and he didn't have the whole Old Testament done, but he was pretty close. And during that time, he was still able to work on that. He finally was sentenced to death for treason. And so he was brought out just outside of Brussels into this town square. They wrapped him with an enormous chain and then put a rope around his neck. And his sentence was strangulation. And then after being strangulated, they were gonna set him on fire. And right before this happened, Tyndale's last words recorded in history were this. He yelled at the top of his lungs. I won't do that, but he yelled at the top of his lungs. Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. The moment he got done, they pulled the rope, killed him, and then set him on fire. Two years later, his prayer came true because the King of England, Henry VIII, ordered that every church in England be required to have an English translation from William Tyndale in their community. And 75 years later, when King James put forth the translation that became known as the King James Version, they used 80 to 90% of William Tyndale's translation for the King James Bible. And that Bible, which is the foundation for all subsequent English translations, has touched the lives of millions and millions of people. But it cost William Tyndale his life. At 41 years old, he was strangled and burned at the stake. But if you were to ask William Tyndale, dude, was it worth it? He'd say, I'd do it all over again. Because he took the drastic measures, but he knew God was up to something great. You see, when we talk about drastic measures, for some of us, we become a bit anemic to that. And yet, when God speaks, he's doing so for a purpose. If God has been speaking to you because you have been in some way not living in tune to what God has asked you to do, that there is disobedience in your life. God does that because he wants you to be healthy and whole. He wants to have a relationship with you in such a way where he can draw out of you the best and he can begin to put to death that which is in you that is hindering you and those around you from being all that God wants you to be. And then when God comes and speaks to you in times where you've done nothing wrong, it's because God is inviting you on an adventure that God wants to partner with us to bring about his purposes in the world. And these adventures may cost us something. They may cost us a lot. And when you hear the word adventure, some of you are thinking, okay, but yeah, but God's not calling me to translate a Bible into English. God is not calling me to do something where I'm constantly on the run, fearing for my life. No, 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 But, but an adventure doesn't have to be categorized by that. You know what a really great adventure is? Being a phenomenal mom. 
doing an amazing job with your kids. Waking up every day going, I've got these disciples that I get to train. How can I do this in such an amazing way? So often I think stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads basically are kind of, well, you just kind of get to take care of the kids. What, are you kidding me? Raising up the next level of disciples to change the world? That's an adventure worth pursuing. Being an amazing father, being an amazing husband, that's an incredible adventure to be on. Being a businessman, a businesswoman who conducts yourself in such a way that when people engage with you, they recognize that somehow God is leading your company, that's worth the adventure. So God's word I believe today is that literally whenever you hear a word from God, take whatever measures necessary, however drastic to do what he's asking you to do. How has God been speaking to you? What's he been saying to you this Lenten season? How has God been speaking to you in this, in this series? Is there any way like Jonah you've been running from God? God may just call you for some corrective stuff in your life. God may be calling you to do some really drastic things. And the question is, is that will we be willing to do this? Because for the king of Nineveh, he sits in the dirt and he covers himself. He says, whatever it takes, however uncomfortable, however uncomfortable, whatever it means, I'm in. And God's question for us this morning as well is will we be people who are willing to hear? Let's pray. God, we hear words like a follower of you is someone who listens and obeys. God, it's so simple to understand and yet so ridiculously hard to do. God, give us the courage to do that. Give us the courage to hear. May you continue to be a God who speaks and may we be a people that wake up every morning saying, God, open, out my, open up my ears, clear them out so that I can hear your word. And Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the courage to walk it out. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, if you're a guest here this morning, so great to have had you here. Uh, if we can answer any questions for you, speak to you, meet you in any way, we're gonna have people up front wearing orange tags. If you want some prayer, people up front will be wearing orange tags as well. And I would really encourage you to get one of those stronger challenge documents as you leave here today. But let's just stand together and let's just close with a word of blessing, shall we? My friends and family here at Central Wesleyan Church, may you be a people that wake up every morning with ears that are willing to listen and a heart that is willing to do. May you recognize that this is a God who speaks and may you take whatever measures necessary, however drastic, to obediently walk out the word that you have heard. Grace and peace be with all of you. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Take care.